If you're just joining us for the first time today, we've been systematically working through Mark, and we picked up in Mark again last week after a few months away. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 25 this morning. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. If you have your Bible, read along with me. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came to the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and said, and said, uh, say to him, one to another, is it I? He said to them, it is the one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, it is, is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better that that man had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. If you look at verse 26, we won't be reading verses 26 through 31, but I just simply want to point to you that it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. That portion of text is absolutely a part of the very same meal that we're reading about today, but I just want to let you know we'll be dealing with that text when we talk about Peter's denial in a few weeks. Let's pray. Let's ask God to give us wisdom as we study his word. Father, we ask now that as we turn our eyes to your word, that you open our hearts to hear from you, that you open our hearts to want to respond and obey to you this morning. We pray that you would speak to us because we believe that your word is the very word of God the very authority, the living word, which gives us life and light and truth. We pray that it would guide us this morning. Amen. This morning we have in the text in front of us what I believe is the most important dinner in the history of the world. I say that without exaggeration. I believe the text in front of us is the record of the most important dinner in the history of the world. And this morning, I want to make that case for you. I want to point out four specific reasons from the text that I believe this meal that we will read about, this Passover that Jesus will celebrate with his disciples, is the most important meal that took place ever in the history of the world. The outline for our passage this morning is quite simple. In verses 12 to 16, we're going to see what we call covert preparations for the Passover. Covert preparations. We see Jesus is somewhat secretive as he is helping his disciples prepare for the Passover. And we want to take a look at why. Verses 17 to 21, we're going to see a shocking announcement. 
Just as Jesus is ready to partake of the meal with the disciples, he's going to reveal something that has to absolutely blow away his disciples, that one of the twelve, one of them sitting at that table, was going to turn against Jesus. In verses 22 to 25, we're going to talk about a new covenant that is established. And there we have our roadmap for this morning, the most important dinner in the history of the world. Notice I put part one. It's not going to be two sermons, but we'll examine why it's part one at the end of our sermon this morning. Four specific reasons, and there's three ways that our text divides. Covert preparations, a shocking announcement, and a new covenant is established. So let's go ahead and look at Verses 12 to 16, let's take a look at this covert preparations and just a few comments on the text. The text begins by letting us know that this is the first day of unleavened bread. It's the day when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. If you've been in the audience in the previous weeks, then you know that the, these, uh, the, the, the Passover uh, feast or the celebration and the Feast of Unleavened Breads, it's about seven days and they're not exactly the same. The Passover feast uh, is a unique celebration celebrating uh, the time when Israel or God frees Israel from Egypt by uh, sending a, uh, a curse upon all of Egypt. And in fact, all of God's people, it says, listen, your firstborn will die unless you respond to me in faith and offer a lamb and paint the, the doorpost of your home with the blood of that lamb. That was a feast that would be commemorated from that moment all throughout Israel's history. And that's the celebration that we've arrived at this, uh, as we come to the text. One thing to simply point out about the Passover is that It's very clear, going back to Deuteronomy chapter 16, that the Passover was to be celebrated only within the city walls of Jerusalem. It was to be celebrated nowhere else. And so when we come to Jesus and his disciples, this is a really key piece of information. Because last week we left off with the reality that the leaders of the Jewish people had put a hit out on Jesus. He's a marked man. And we also left off with the fact that Judas was now ready to betray Jesus. And with those two important factors, you need to understand that Jesus was a marked man when he entered the city. And so it's just not an obscure fact that when we talk about the fact that Jesus needs to celebrate the Passover, and when he does, he needs to be in the city of Jerusalem, how difficult a situation this puts Jesus in. Because to honor the Passover, Jesus must enter the city. And when he enters the city, he's entering the very place that's put a hit out on his head. Let's talk about the preparations. If you notice that the disciples go to Jesus and they ask him, what about the preparations? The the text says it's the first day of unleavened bread. And what I can tell you is uh, it is Thursday. Thursday is the day where you made preparations for the feast. So uh, if you can imagine, imagine uh, around my house, there's, there's probably two days where there's immense preparation for food, Thanksgiving and Christmas. And you know that uh, when we talk about days where we're having a celebration and we're having guests, you know how much preparation goes into those days. You know that there's the buying of the food. There's accounting. How much do we have? How many people are coming? You have all of the side dishes that you want to make. And this is what Jesus' disciples are literally asking him. They know it's the day. Today is the day. All the preparations must be made. And we know that at twilight, every single uh, Jewish family, that twilight, that Passover lamb would be sacrificed and then you would get the lamb and then you would need to roast the lamb and then you would have all the side dishes. There was very specific side dishes that went along with the feast. It, it was the, the, every single family was celebrating the same feast in the same way. This wasn't a free-for-all of what do you think you're going to have for Passover? I'm thinking ham. No, it wasn't ham. It was lamb. There was, this, there was the same feast taking place, and everybody had to make, maybe if, you're, if you know the Jewish history, you got that joke about the ham. Uh, maybe for some of you, it's taken a little bit longer. But 
there was preparations to be made. And Jesus' disciples are going to him and they're asking the question, Master, where are we celebrating the Passover? Who's making the preparations? How is it to be done? Can you imagine? It's the day of the Passover to celebrate. And Jesus' disciples don't know where they're celebrating. Jesus has kept this relatively secret. It's been guarded. It's been close to the chest and for good reason. You notice that when we talk about the disciples and, and they're coming, by the way, the, the, the text, not here, but in the parallel passage, we find out that the two disciples that Jesus sends are Peter and John. These are his two of his inner three. If you know of the 12 disciples, there was three disciples who made up the inner three, Peter, James, and John. Peter and John were brothers. And so the disciples come and Jesus is going to dispatch two of his most trusted disciples. He says, Peter, John, you go make the preparations. But then notice that it's, there's this covert mission because Jesus doesn't tell them all the details. He tells them, look for a man carrying a jar. That might not make a lot of sense in today's culture. You think, what, what kind of message was that? Go into the city, blindly walk in, and be looking around for a guy carrying a jar. Now, what Jesus seems to be doing is giving a sign. And what they would look for was something that would stand out. In this day, in this time, in this culture, men did not walk around carrying water. It was not a task that men would take up uh, and, and perform. We're not trying to be uh, sexist or chauvinist, but what I can tell you of that culture in that time period was this. Women carried the water. And so to see a man carrying a pitcher of water or a jar of water would have been a unique sight. It wasn't that a man couldn't. It was that this was not typical. And so Jesus sends them into the city and he says, look for this sign. And so Peter and John go in faith. They are, are walking into the city. They're looking for the man. And as soon as they see the man, they're not to go up and talk to them. They're just supposed to follow him. And whatever house that man goes into, then they have a, a message that they're supposed to say word for word. And that message was very specifically, it says, let me say, so I don't get to what it says. The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And so once they communicated that message, then the owner of the home would respond and he would show them a place where they could celebrate. Just so you know, we mentioned last week that, that the city would swell in population about four or five times its normal size. And if you can imagine that by the rule of Deuteronomy that every pilgrim must celebrate within the city walls, how difficult it was to find a space to celebrate. In fact, it was expected that everyone who lived within the city walls they would provide any spare room that they had so that pilgrims could use a spare room to, to celebrate. We know from the, uh, from, uh, the recordings of Josephus, uh, a historian who was, who was not a Christian, but was a Roman historian, that typically at least 10 people would share a meal together, 10 or more. And so all over the city, you would have groups of 10 or more people looking to find a room to celebrate. Now Jesus has prepared his. His disciples have gone looking for the, the very specific person, a man carrying a jar of water. They followed him to that house. And when they arrived at the house, they used the, the language that Jesus had told them to communicate. Tell the owner of the home the teacher would like to know where the room is. So now the preparations are ready. I just want to make a note here that you need to see, at the end it says, everything had took place just as it was told to them. You need to see that Jesus is completely in control of this last day of his life. You absolutely have to see in the text that Jesus is not uh, simply being carried about by the circumstances of what's about to take place, his betrayal, 
you need to see that from the start, Jesus is fully in control of everything that is taking place. The preparations in the room, the the appointing of only Peter and John, making sure that Jesus was able to arrive safely to celebrate the Passover without being caught by the authorities or being betrayed by Judas ahead of time. This is critical. I want to take a look now at this shocking announcement in verses 17 to 21. Because in verse 17, it says, when it was evening and the 12 came, so the place has been prepared. Peter and John have taken care of all that they need to do. They've secured the lamb. They, secu- they probably went to the market. They went shopping for the things that they needed. The room is prepared. And then when it was time, Jesus now enters the city. I told you that it was at twilight. So at twilight, the lambs were sacrificed at the temple. And then after that, the lambs would be roasted. And so you can imagine that dinner preparations after getting the food ready, it would begin quite later in the evening. So Jesus would have entered the city under the cover of darkness, like many others who are now flooding into the city to celebrate. And as they sit down, it says, when uh, he came with the 12, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. A few comments about verses 17 through 21 that I think are important. Did you notice here, have you ever looked at the text and recognized that although Jesus knew it was Judas, he doesn't call him out by name? That to the very end, Jesus extends grace for Judas to repent of what he was about to do? That Judas simply lets his disciples know that one of you will betray me, refusing to call Judas, and that would be my human instinct. Wouldn't, if, if you knew the guy who was going to betray you, wouldn't you want to nail him to the wall? Right? Wouldn't, in front of you and your friends, wouldn't you want to call him out? Says, hey, by the way, I know that one of you is going to betray me. But you can see that this is not Jesus' intention. Jesus' intention is not to call Judas out. Jesus' intention isn't to avoid what is going to happen. First, one of the things you see is Jesus is going to extend grace by not naming Jesus. He gives Jesus, or he gives Judas every opportunity to stop and repent of what he's about to do. In fact, I love how John, if you read the book of John uh, and his account, it says, having loved his disciples to the very end, Jesus did everything that he could to possibly love every single one of his disciples, including Judas, to the very end. And here we see that Jesus invites his disciples to know about the betrayal without giving away who it might be. Now, I want to turn to John 13 because I think it's important. In John 13, verses 18 through 20, we're going to see that Jesus is going to foretell and he's going to see that Scripture is fulfilled. John 13 gives us a little bit different angle on this account. 13, verses 18 through 20. Jesus says to his disciples, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know who I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. So notice first and foremost that Jesus sees what's about to happen with his betrayal as a fulfillment of scripture. He who ate bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me, the one who sent me. John adds something more than Mark tells us, and I think it's really important. Jesus is actually quoting Psalm 41.9. This is a Psalm of David. In Psalm 41.9, it says, My close friends in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So Jesus takes Psalm 41.9, and as he's eating the meal with his disciples, he quotes that verse And he tells them so that scripture will be fulfilled. Jesus sees his betrayal as something that the scriptures have spoken to. And it means that Jesus is not wanting to escape his betrayal, but rather that he embraces his betrayal. That difference is so fundamental, so critical to our understanding of Jesus' death, that I believe we should mark this 
Because it changes, it turns on its head Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. It changes the fact that instead of Jesus being a victim of betrayal, instead of Jesus being a victim of circumstances, Jesus tells his disciples ahead of time, the scriptures have said this, I embrace this, I am, I am sharing with you Psalm 41.9, that those who have eaten of my bread will lift up their heel against me. And instead of running from this, Jesus could have, when he knew this, Jesus could have hightailed it out of Jerusalem. He could have not gone to the Passover. If Jesus' primary objective was to protect his life instead of lay down his life, he could have left the moment he knew he would be betrayed. So why didn't he? It's because Jesus said that this was fulfilling the scriptures. And so I told you earlier, I see this meal as the most important dinner in the history of the world. And this is the very first reason that I believe this dinner was the most important dinner in the history of the world. Is because Jesus tells his disciples critical information about his death that prevents us from seeing Jesus as a victim, but a victor. Without this verse, we would not know how to interpret Jesus' death. We would have the understanding that possibly it was a mistake, that maybe Jesus was a victim of betrayal, that maybe this was not God's plan. But this verse right here, the fact that Jesus sat down with his disciples and he tells them that he will be betrayed, and he tells them that it will fulfill Scripture, prevents us in any way, unequivocally, from saying that this was not God's plan. That's fundamental to our understanding of salvation. Now, we won't have time to dive into this, but look at verse 21. It says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. What does that mean? So Jesus is saying, he's calling himself the Son of Man. He says, For the Son of Man goes as it was written of him. Once again, Jesus is doubling down on the fact that what is about to take place has been spoken of in the scriptures. The Son of Man goes as it was written of him. Jesus believes that these things have been written. Jesus believes that his disciples will be able to go back and look at the Old Testament and they will be able to clearly see that this was God's plan all along. Isaiah and the suffering servant. Jesus is opening their minds to understand But notice the next verse. He says, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. I'll just say that that singular verse takes us into some pretty deep doctrine. If you just breeze through that and maybe didn't reflect on what that verse is saying, I don't want you to miss what Jesus is affirming. This verse is telling us something about the relationship between divine, what we call causality, of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Jesus says, look at verse 21 again, for the son of man goes as it was written of him. Jesus believes that all that is taking place in his life was specifically sovereignly dictated by God's Word. At the same time, he says, it's better for this person who's going to betray me to have never been born. Human wisdom would take a look at these and think either divine sovereignty and providence is true, or man's free will and responsibility is true, but they both can't be true. Either God planned this, and we can't really blame Judas. Or God is not completely sovereign. Things like what Judas does happen. Evil happens. We know evil happens in the world. And we don't really know exactly how God interacts. But he can't be sovereign and man be fully responsible. Let me just tell you, this verse blows that theology out of the water. Because no one can now hold that God can't plan and be sovereign and at the same time hold man responsible. Because Jesus just says that happens here. Now, I told you, that is some deep theology. We don't have the time to unpack that, but I just want to point out that, that many would say this is contradictory. 
But the scriptures prevent us from taking such a view. Why? Because of verses just like this. If that's something that you want to delve into more, I'd be glad to talk with you after the sermon, but it's not something we can go fully into here, but we would be remiss if we didn't at least point out the deep, deep theology that Jesus is inviting us to know by saying his death and his betrayal was both the plan of God and the person who betrayed him is fully uh, responsible for their actions. In fact, so much so it'd be better for him if he was never born. Those are two truths the Bible tells us to hold together. And let me tell you, you won't find human answers to that question. You will only find them in the Scriptures. Only the Scriptures can tell us how to hold those two together. I want to move on to the third section. And this is where we will see our final three reasons why I believe this is the most important dinner in the history of the world. And that is verses 22 to 25. This is a celebration of the Passover, and I want to make a few commentary notes before we really dive down. You notice that I've been mostly touching the surface in those first, uh, the, the surface in those first two passages. We're going to dive down deeper in this third passage. But as we take these groups uh, of Scripture, and as we're specifically aiming to land at the resurrection on Easter, we have to take God's word. There's places where I will have to tell you more surface information, and then we'll have to pick and choose where we really dive into the word. We're going to dive in in verses 22 to 25, but first a few important, what I would call need-to-know information about the Passover. So depending on the age of those who are around the table, I don't know the age of the disciples. We know Jesus was somewhere around 30. We know his disciples would have, uh, possibly some may have been older, possibly some a little bit younger. Every single one of those disciples had celebrated the Passover exactly the same way since they were born. And since God had instituted the celebration of the Passover, Israel had kept this unbroken tradition of every year the highest the holiest festival and celebration on the, the calendar of the Israelites was the Passover. The meaning of the Passover, as mentioned already, it commemorates the deliverance from Egypt of the death angel that God sends not only to Egypt, but also to his own people. The death angel would take the firstborn son And it didn't differentiate. If you, if you go back to uh, the story of uh, God's people in Egypt, m- remember the, the curses, where the, the, the first several uh, curses that God places on Egypt, he makes a difference between Egypt and Israel. And then God moves to, to give the same judgment. And he invites his people to respond to him in faith, and he says, listen, You will offer an unblemished lamb. That lamb, you will take the blood and you will paint it over the doorposts. And when the death angel comes, he will either take your firstborn son or he will pass over your house, depending on whether in faith you had sacrificed the lamb and applied the blood to the doorposts. It was literally an invitation to believe God at his word. And what we know is... Both Egyptian and Israelite, who did not respond to God in faith, suffered the consequences of the loss of their firstborn son. This is the meaning of the Passover. And what the Passover did is it put in in, right in front of the Israelites their constant need for God to pass over their sins. Sin was serious. So serious it required life. And the only way that you could get out from underneath the consequences of your sin was that each and every year there would be a sacrifice for sins. The the high priest would offer a, a lamb. He would take it. He would put the blood on the altar. And on that high and holy day, God would choose to pass over their sins for one more year. 
But the reason for the celebration was to keep in front of God's people always that there has to be a sacrifice for sins. Your sin is so serious, it requires death. And if you ever forget this, you will forget what it means to be in relationship with the holy God, a holy God who can't no sin, and who's, who, where, where sin cannot be in his presence, but a God who loves his people so much and has entered into covenant with them that has made a provision where yearly God has chosen to pass over their sins. This was the reason the Passover was a high and holy celebration. What was the meal? Well, the Passover meal consisted of roasted lamb, as we've talked about, unleavened bread, and a dish of bitter herbs. So when we talked about the preparations that the disciples would get together, it would be at at the very minimum, the lamb, which they would need to roast. It would be unleavened bread that they had to prepare. And it would be certain types of bitter herbs. The lamb reminded the Jews of the blood that was applied to the doorpost in Egypt. The bread... Reminded them of leaving in haste. We talked about this last week. The the bread uh, had no yeast, so it wouldn't rise. It was to be reminiscent of the fact that they left Egypt in such a hurry that their bread didn't even have a chance to rise. The bitter herbs, it symbolized the suffering of Pharaoh's slaves. We remember well that Israel suffered uh, significantly under Pharaoh... And the bitter herbs were to remind them of that. So they, they had dishes with the bitter herbs. I don't know if that's uh, uh, heavy on my celebration where I go with the bitter herbs. Uh, typically, I'm choosing things that are a little bit more uh, delightful to the palate. But God had called Israel to use bitter herbs because it reminded them of the suffering that they had in Egypt. Now, in the centuries that followed, what would be added to this ceremony is four cups of wine there would be a a cup of wine or watered-down wine that would be uh, drunk at different stages of the Passover. And it was divided into four stages. Let me tell you how the Passover went because this information is really important to understanding how Jesus reinterprets the Passover. On the night of the Passover, there was always the same pattern. The youngest boy or the youngest son, when the feast would begin, he would ask the oldest male, it could be his father or it could be his grandfather, I told you that they would, they would bring families together and celebrate. So the youngest would ask the oldest to tell the story of the Exodus and the Passover. This is how the meal always began. The youngest would ask the oldest, and then the oldest would stand up. And he would go through the entire story of Israel living in Egypt as slaves under Pharaoh, of the Exodus, of the Passover lamb, of the unleavened bread. He would tell the entire story. Then they would read Psalms 113 to 118. It's what we call the Halal Psalms. And after the recitation of the story and after the singing of the songs, there would be a blessing. So the first part of the meal would be a blessing pronounced by the family head over the gathering. Then, as I mentioned, uh, excuse me, uh, as I, uh, I skipped over one part. The first part was the blessing. The second part was the child's question. The third part would be the father's benediction where he would actually take the elements, he would take the food, he would take the cup, he would bless it, and then he would give it for the family to eat. Lastly, near midnight, they would conclude singing Psalms 116 to 118 and drinking the fourth cup of wine. There would be four parts, and this is how every Passover would go. Every single family, all the same traditions, this is how the Passover would be held. Now, We've laid the foundation for diving in, and that's exactly what I want to do right now as we take a look at the three reasons I believe this is the most important dinner in the history of the world. The text says, as they were eating, and it indicates 
that we've arrived at the third part of the meal. I told you that the meal was three parts. There was the blessing uh, by the head of the the, uh, family. There was the child's question and the storytelling. And the third part they arrive at was the benediction of the food, the blessing of the food, and now the eating. Up until this point, I told you, every single disciple, whether they were 18, 19, 25, or 43, I don't know how old they were, had experienced the exact same Passover, going by the exact same pattern every single year of their life. And it's exactly at this point that Jesus goes off the script and he changes the Passover forever. In verse 22, it says, He took the bread, and after blessing it, you notice, just like the oldest member would take the food to bless it, it says, He broke it and gave it to them. And Jesus says, Take this, my body. And He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And He said to them, This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out For many. With those words, my body, my blood, Jesus takes the Passover that they'd celebrated in the same way every single year of their life, and he now changes the meaning of the Passover completely. And this is the second reason that I want you to see that this is the most important dinner in the history of the world. Jesus establishes a new Passover celebration with himself at the center. Notice clearly, Jesus establishes a new Passover celebration with himself at the center. The old Passover was now done. It had fulfilled its purpose. Jesus didn't say this in so many words, but by changing the Passover tradition, saying this is my body and this is my blood, what Jesus has done is taken the Passover... He's created an entirely new Passover, and he's placed himself at the center. From this point forward, the celebration of the Passover would be celebrating Jesus' death. Jesus interprets what the Passover means by using the words, my body and my blood. Jesus is clearly showing that he is the center of the Passover celebration. Think about this. For years... Israel had been celebrating the Passover by taking a lamb, a perfect lamb, a lamb without blemish, offering that lamb, and then consuming that lamb. Jesus steps into this Passover feast. He takes that same formula, but right at the time where they're going to eat, Jesus breaks bread, hands it to his disciples, and says, this is my body. Some of the parallel versions have my body broken for you. Jesus takes the cup, which they would have normally drank at the end, and he says, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for the many. Perhaps looking at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 26 will tell us how important this passage is to the foundation of the church and the foundation of a new Passover celebration. You know 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 26. We often use this passage when we celebrate communion. But look at Paul's words. Paul says, For what I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, notice what he says, took the bread. When he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This is the cup in the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Then he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26, is the foundational text that we often use for our Lord's Supper. Communion. Holy communion. What Jesus did at that Passover was he took the Jewish Passover and he fulfilled that Jewish Passover. And he showed that all of those years, they were actually celebrating They were looking forward to Jesus, the Passover lamb, 
the lamb who would die to take away the sins of the world. The Jewish Passover now becomes the Christian Passover. The celebration that happened on a yearly basis, the highest and holiest celebration of the Jews, now comes into the Christian faith as the foundation of the Christian faith. And the tradition that would mark out those who are in Christ is this new Passover celebration. And so the second reason I believe this dinner was the most important dinner in history is because Jesus establishes a new Passover and he places himself at the center and that Passover becomes the foundation of the church. In fact, this is the Passover that we celebrate. We celebrate communion the first Sunday of every month. The Passover has now become a Christian tradition and guess what? Unbroken from the time of the Exodus to the time where Jesus ends the old Passover to the time he begins the new Passover to the marking of the church, we celebrate this Passover feast together. In the church, we call it communion. Let's take a look at the second or the third point of why I believe this is the most important dinner in the history of the world, and that's Jesus establishes a new covenant with humanity. Much more than a new Passover, Jesus' words, my blood of the covenant, make clear a new covenant between God and man has now entered into the world. When Jesus uses those words, my blood of the covenant, Jesus marks in time, Literally, the time where the old covenant is now ending and a new covenant is beginning with those words. Jesus makes clear that the old covenant and the way that God was working through Israel and the Jewish people, the covenant that began when God freed them from Egypt and God gave them his law at Mount Sinai and God entered into covenant. And how was that covenant made? It was a covenant made in blood. A covenant was ratified or a covenant. And when we sign a contract today, what makes a contract good is when we sign it. It's, it's the accepted way that a contract is made, right? You have a contract, you have the formal document and you sign it. When both parties sign and date, it becomes an effective document. Well, the scriptures tell us that in the Old Testament, the way that God ratified the covenant at Sinai was the sacrifice of, uh, of an animal and the blood. And, and uh, God literally uh, had Moses sprinkle the blood on the people to say, this covenant this is now made between you and me of blessings and curses. I will be your God. You will be my people. But we know that in the prophets, a new covenant is spoken of, a covenant that would now fulfill all the promises of the old and actually enter into a new relationship between God and man. A covenant that did something that the old covenant could not. The law given on Mount Sinai could only make us aware of our sins, but it gave us no power to keep the law. And so Elijah, excuse me, Ezekiel and Jeremiah prophesy of a covenant where God would take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And what Jesus does by saying, this is the blood of my covenant, Jesus makes clear that the prophesied covenant, the one that would be better than the old covenant, where God enters into a new agreement with humanity, Jesus makes clear that time is now. And so the third reason that I believe this dinner was the most important dinner in the history of the world is that Jesus establishes a new covenant with humanity. The old covenant ratified with the blood of animal sacrifices has now given way to the new covenant, which is ratified in the blood of the very Son of God. And when Jesus offered his life on that cross, the old covenant came to an end and the new covenant began. And Jesus marks that first here. His disciples were the first ones to hear. Around that table was the first ones who would hear and comprehend the new covenant is here. Lastly, the fourth reason 
I believe this dinner was the most important dinner in the history of the world is that Jesus promises a future Passover celebration. In verse 20, 20, uh, 25, it says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Notice I titled the sermon, The Most Important Dinner in History, Part 1. The reason for that was not because there's two parts to this sermon. The reason is because I so clearly see in the text that Jesus is saying there is a part two. That Jesus initiates the new Passover with his disciples at that moment around that table. But Jesus points their eyes before he closes. Jesus points their eyes and he makes a promise that one day you will celebrate this meal with me in the kingdom, which is part two. I don't know of what you think of when you think of heaven. I know, sadly, I've had people tell me they think they'll be bored. What could I possibly do for all of that time, for all of that eternity in heaven? I don't know what the greatest celebration you've ever been to might have been. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where the worship that you experienced the singing of the voices in unison, the celebrating together. I don't know if you've been in a place where you literally feel your soul is coming out of your body when you hear worship beyond anything that you've experienced here in the church. I've had it happen a handful of times at a convention, singing together, singing the, uh, the worship of God in unified voice, hearing the saints singing together, and literally it's an experience that takes you out of your body. I don't know what you think of when you think of celebrating together. My heart gets happy every time I think of Christmas or Thanksgiving. Because to me, celebrating the food, the friends, the tradition, my heart is so happy. If you uh, have known me very long, you'll know that my little childlike heart loves celebrating. I don't know if you think of celebration like that. I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding And as you're watching the bride and the groom and you're watching the loving commitment of those two people, if your heart does not explode with love, with seeing people enter into covenant commitment. But I can give you as many illustrations as I can, but nothing will compare to the promise of this feast that Jesus says I had it in humble means and in the walls of Jerusalem, prepared by human hands, the bitter herbs, the lamb, the wine. But what Jesus did as he finishes this meeting with his disciples, where he begins to reinterpret what the Passover was, when he institutes a new covenant, as he doesn't leave until he promises, this is just a foretaste. What we're doing around this table, how we're celebrating, is only pointing to the future when we will one day celebrate, not with us 11, but with all of those who have come to believe in Christ, all with one voice, all around the table, and you won't be preparing this for me. I will go before you, and I'm preparing it for you. And Jesus says, I won't even drink of the vine. I won't drink of the cup until you're there. What does that mean? Here's what I know. When you're celebrating and you've invited guests, you don't start early. You wait for everyone to get there, right? Jesus says, I'm not starting early. I'm not starting the celebration. I don't know what you think of when you think of heaven, but if you don't think of the greatest celebration, the greatest time together of being friends of Jesus Christ gathered around that table, being there worshiping our Lord and our Savior who laid down his life, of understanding this meal is not about the, a, a lamb, but about the lamb who has sacrificed his life then I'll probably tell you then you don't have the true hope of heaven. Jesus plants this seed and this is what we look forward to as disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus awaits. He refuses 
to start the festivities without us, and he's promised us a future celebration together in heaven. Those are the four reasons that I believe that the text in front of us outlines the most important dinner in the history of the world. Well, I can't end a sermon about the most important dinner in the history of the world without telling you the greatest news in all the world. And that's that you're invited to the feast. You're invited into the new covenant. You're invited into the kingdom. That if you have that desire to one day experience the world's greatest celebration around the table of our king, that you've been invited. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you haven't. I remember when I was a little kid, probably third or fourth grade, found out there was a party at school, birthday party, that I wasn't invited to. And man, it broke my heart. That was the first time I ever felt that fear of missing out. I could promise you if you've lived long enough, then there's been celebrations that you have not been invited to. Things that you've missed out on. You didn't make the cut. Not enough friends. I remember when Des and I had to tell people they couldn't come to our wedding because we only had so many spots. But here's what I can tell you. Everyone is invited. Jesus Christ has made his new covenant with humanity available to all who would believe and trust in God's Passover lamb, the one who laid down his life for us, If you would like to know more about how to place your faith in Jesus and how to be at the table, I would love to tell you more about that today. Let's pray. God, you're good and you do good. We're so thankful for how we have the scriptures who constantly remind us of the truth That your death was not a mistake, but it was intricately planned by the sovereign God of heaven to redeem mankind to himself and to purchase with his son's blood men and women so that they might be around his throne and be at the great celebration of the bride and their Christ. God, I pray for anybody in this room who does not yet know you. I pray that they would understand that they are invited to the feast. And I pray that they would respond in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.